Welcome to Lost in the Wilderness, a priest and a rabbi explore Exodus. I am Carl Stevens, I'm the priest. And I am Daniel Bogard, the rabbi. And today we are joined again by the great Robin Holland. Say hi, Robin. Hi, everyone. I'm delighted to be here again. Uh, Looking forward to an interesting discussion. We're delighted to have you back. Thanks for being here. Um, the, and Robin, you actually brought us some knowledge that you were telling us about before we started recording. Last time, we, we left on a kind of cliffhanger question of why there are fewer plagues listed in Psalm 78 and Psalm 106 than there are in Exodus. Um, and I, you did a little digging on that. Can you kind of give us your findings? I did. And I'm not, I didn't find everything I hoped to find. I did find that indeed in Psalm 78 and in Psalm 105, um, there are seven plagues listed. All of them are plagues that are included in the 10 that are in Exodus uh, as we read and begin to get through those plagues. The three that are not included in either Psalm are uh, the plague of boils uh, that covers all the people and animals, um, wild animals, and then um, the diseases of the livestock. And I try as I could, couldn't find an explanation for why there were only seven uh, in the Psalms. Um, and what is the connection between those three that are not included? Um, what it did bring to mind for me uh, is thinking about Revelation and all of the the signs and judgments that take place in in that book they all take place in sevens there are seven seals that are opened each one bringing a judgment there are seven trumpets that are blown each one bringing a judgment and seven bowls that are emptied out each one bringing a judgment. Um, so I'm not sure if there is a connection where John is looking back on, on this or not. We know that Daniel talked last week about uh, the significance of seven, but I still don't know um, why those three are left out. And so I, I still may do some more digging. Yeah. And it, um, I think I said it was Psalm 106. It, it is definitely Psalm 105 that also has a list. Um, but Robin, I'm, I'm looking it over now. I think pestilence to their beasts is actually mentioned in 78 in oh, verse 48. Yeah. It's the plague. The third plague that's missing, I believe is darkness. Darkness is not listed. Oh, here. you know what? I think you're right. Yeah. But I don't have the, huh? But once again, um, all the things I've kind of glanced over don't really give any explanation for why this is, except maybe that the Psalms have a different uh, purpose behind them than Exodus. So they're trying to call the people back through memory to praise and worship of the Lord. And um, therefore, they are not the listing of the plagues are, are not is not really about the Egyptians. It's about the Jews and uh, what they should be, what they should be doing in terms of worship and faithfulness. Um, and, and maybe that matters in some ways, right? Like, I, I don't know, but um, that at any rate is, is what I'm glancing at says. Right. And I think it's enough to suggest, you know, for, for future folks, there were plagues, they were horrible. Here are some of the things that happened and that might be how we might recap something. Um, so I, I, th- I think I agree with you in terms of the purposes. It was a worship. They were worship songs. And we've of course got two different whole numbers too. Yes. Right? Uh, 10 being of course a central human number uh, yes. of uh, all the fingers on our hands, uh, and seven being how we count our weeks. Huh. So regardless, we've got this whole sense of um, shalem, of wholeness that's happening here. Ten also uh, can signify government sometimes when you're looking at Bible numbers. Um, ten sometimes deals with, with um, government, which would make sense if we're dealing with um, the whole Pharaoh system as a system, as a, as a administration, uh, that might make sense too. Hmm. Yeah. There's also something pretty to the symmetry of, uh, right. It keeps standing out to me that, uh, the Jews aren't asking at this point for freedom. They're asking to go out into the wilderness and, and worship commune with the divine. Exactly. Uh, and of course we know that it'll peak at Sinai with, 
the revelation of 10 things, right? Or uh, we sometimes call it the 10 commandments, but the, the Hebrew is actually just 10 things or 10 utterances. Uh, so we've got sort of a deconstruction and a reconstruction. Yes. I, I, I like what you just said about government too, Robin, because it makes me think, you know, the French Revolution tried to remake the calendar in terms of tens. Uh, you know, so there are 10 days in a week instead of seven. And so in some ways, 10 is about kind of government order, the human attempt to impose order on a creation, which is really not interested in our, well, but even in if our we counting think about, schemes. Even if we think about the commandments, there are 10. Yeah. As a way Whereas, after to regulate how we are to behave or how, how the Israelites were to behave. There were 10 of them. Right. All right. Well, so we, I think, dear listeners, that we have uh, told you everything we know about why there is a difference between these two things. And if if somebody has a a, a more knowledgeable standpoint, let us know by all means. Uh, but in the meantime, let's jump into chapter eight. Okay. Uh, Robin, you did such a nice job last time. You feel like reading this time too? Sure, I'll read. And I'm reading from the uh, New Revised Standard Version. Wonderful. Then the Lord said to Moses, go to Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord, let my people go so that they may worship me. Okay, hold on. We have to, I just realized I am not following along with you. Uh, oh, that's right. Because of our verse numbering. So anyone who's looking at home too, I think you just read. I read starting, I read verse one of chapter eight. Which is verse 26, 26 of 26, seven for you. Yes. Okay. Sorry about that. Go ahead. Then the Lord said to Moses, go to Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord, let my people go so that they may worship me. If you refuse to let them go, I will plague your whole country with frogs. The rivers shall swarm with frogs. They shall come up into your palace, into your bedchamber and your bed, and into the houses of your officials and of your people, and into your ovens and your kneading bowls. The frogs shall come up on you and on your people and on your officials. So, we, so we've actually got a great midrash here that says that the frogs themselves went into people that you could hear them croaking from inside of uh, people's intestines wherever they walked (laughs) this brings me to a question about the plagues in general uh we don't so the nile is full of blood but it never says it stops being full of blood it says Seven full days passed after the Lord struck the Nile and then come the frogs. So if they're coming up out of the Nile, are these blood-covered frogs to begin with? I guess I assumed that although Pharaoh's people could not clear the blood, that when that plague was over, that Moses and or Aaron and God, through God, cleared the blood. I assumed because we're not talking about blood anymore. So I assumed that at the end of that time, when he had a chance to um, relent and did not, that uh, the blood was cleared up and now we're on to a new plague. That was my assumption. And that has been the classic Jewish understanding uh, that there is this sort of month long pattern for each of these plagues where the plague lasts for a week or seven days. Uh, and then we have another three weeks of Moses pleading with Pharaoh to please, please, please give in so that we don't have to bring another plague. Mm-hmm. Okay. So they're not piling up as far as we can see. No, they are, they are discrete events. Yeah. It seems like each one is taken away. In some cases, they specifically tell us, you know, at tomorrow at this time or at a time <laughs> you say, <laughs> I will take this away. And then that happens. And then Pharaoh still doesn't pay any attention, doesn't heed. And, and, um, so we have another one each time. So a, uh, uh, another midrash that I love here, we have this line, it's verse 27 for me. Would that be verse two for you, Robin? If you refuse to let them go, then I will plague your whole country with frogs. Yes. That's verse two. Mm-hmm. So this word can also mean I will, I will plague up to your borders with frogs. And so there's this great Midrash that says the Egyptians and the Ethiopians had been at war over and over and over again for hundreds of years because they couldn't agree on where the proper boundary, where the border is between Egypt and Ethiopia. And that actually of all of the plagues, this one brought peace. 
because of course the plague uh, uh, meant that the frogs only died up to the proper border. And so the Egyptians and the Ethiopians could gather and say, oh, okay, the, the line of dead frogs is the place <laughs> where one country ends and the other begins. So who is setting these borders? Is this God saying I get to make the borders or is it uh, call it calling out a kind of Egyptian dishonesty about where their borders lie? Mm. Um, how have we gone from a, a God of a place um, who talked to Abraham and Jacob and Isaac to a God who is now presuming to uh, – negotiate border disagreements between nations. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, I mean, what, it, go ahead, Robin. I guess what comes to my mind is this notion of, of God revealing things. I don't think God is pers- setting their borders per se. I think they're already set as you alluded to. And, and he's just revealing them while I'm doing that. Let me take care of this too kind mm-hmm. of thing. You know, here's where the borders you said you were going to have them. Let's let's go ahead and let's just have the frogs there. I don't think he's at the same time establishing a new border. I think the only place I remember him setting borders is for Israel. And it specifically lists um, the, you know, I think in Genesis, I think it specifically lists from this river to that whatever, you know, and gives borders. But I don't think he's doing that here. Though we actually end up getting different descriptions of the boundaries of the land of Israel throughout the Bible. Yes. It's uh-huh. one of the interesting things, right? Yes. It's, it's not clear. Yeah. People like to talk about biblical Israel, but it's not clear what exactly yeah. biblical Israel is. Well, I think it changes because uh, the original ones I think that are in, I'd have to look up exactly where I think it's in Genesis. We just studied it not too long ago in, in uh, my Sunday school class. Um, but part of the... Uh, requirement of Israel was that they walk on all of the land and, and some of the land they didn't walk on, uh, according to the Bible is some of the land that we're still disputing with Palestine about. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I think the borders changed maybe. And then, you know, we got, uh, the United Nations involved and a, a lot of things happen where there's a lot of different versions of the, the boundaries. So I want to, uh, also ask some questions about people's different views and responses to nature. Um, Going back to that Midrash about the frogs croaking from inside people's intestines, um, Robert Alter, whose translation I'm using, uh, talks about the plagues being an undoing of creation. I might have mentioned this last Mm -hmm. week. And he he says uh, about the frogs in particular, the benign swarming of life in Genesis turns into a threatening swarm of odious creatures. Mm. So in Genesis, when God brings forth life uh, onto the land, Mm. uh, that is this, except in Genesis, it's seen as a a beautiful and wonderful thing. And here it's seen as a horrific thing. Right. Um, But I never thought of that as a repeat of the reptiles and those, those um, uh, animals that came out of water onto land. I never got that connection, mm-hmm. but that makes sense. Yeah. yeah and in fact, as we'll see in the, the third plague we'll look at today, uh, that's what we get with the swarming creatures. Right. It's, right. it's that whole collection of um, creepy crawly things. The other thing we looked at last week a little bit is this notion of each one of the plagues in some way attacks some authority, either of Pharaoh or of specific God of Egypt. And we looked Mm. at the notion of the Nile being a God. There's also a God, the God of birth or the God of fertility, Heget. And I probably am not saying it right. It's H-E-G-E-T was uh, the Egyptian God. And she had a frog head. Hmm. Um, so I'm wondering if this is maybe a reference for her. And then we also see in Revelations um, chapter 16, um, evil spirits that look like frogs coming out of the mouth of the dragon. And they are unclean or evil spirits. So um, I'm, I'm wondering as we go through, will we see, I know I looked in my Bible that I usually use to teach um, my study Bible, and I had handwritten in there the names for several of the plagues, the gods that were, hmm. um, 
you know, connect it to whatever the, for example, when we get to flies later on in this hour, um, there is Beelzebub who literally is Lord of the flies. And it's a corruption of a word that means Lord of of Lord Most Higher, Lord of the Princes. So I'm, I'm wondering um, if Pharaoh himself is seeing, if this is true, and if this is the intent, What we don't know if this is what God is doing, but if Pharaoh sees those connections, that would, I guess, be my question. You know, I, it also, that was really interesting, Robin, because it also makes me think that... Um, this becomes an indictment not just of Egyptian behavior in a pharaoh, but an indictment, I think, of Egyptian civilization. Exactly. Right? If we're going to say that a civilization rests upon what its image of the divine is, or its image of natural law, or its image of what are the axioms that we build our world upon, uh, right? We, we hold these truths to be self-evident. What are those truths for each civilization? This is a really a deconstruction of Egypt's truths. It's an indictment of the entire civilization. Which becomes an indictment of the people also. And I'm wondering, um, not only does Pharaoh see this as an indictment, because, you know, we we never really get much about what the people in general, because it's this God and it's God versus Pharaoh. But I'm also wondering um, what the reactions are of the Egyptians, Hmm. What, what what is their reaction to all of this? Are they going to Pharaoh and saying, "Look, you got to do something"? That happens much later on, but we don't see them doing that now. So I, I I kind of, as I think about this as a movie, what would these people be doing? We only see Pharaoh and Moses and Aaron and God. <laughs> I, I was flying back from Los Angeles yesterday and rereading uh, Howard Zinn's uh, uh, what's it called? Uh, History of people's history people's of history. the United history of the United States. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, right. What what would a people's history of this story be? Yeah. Uh, not told through the eyes of the leadership, but told through the experience of the everyday slaves of Egypt or yes. told through the experience of the, uh, the commoners mm-hmm. of Egypt, right? Because we're dealing with a highly classist society here yes. as well. Yes. Uh, yeah. That would be a midrash, right? Yeah, there you go. Yeah, there yeah. you go. My kids in school were always shocked. I used his version. I used the versions of his book that he had written for uh, children, and they were always shocked after we had read their history book and then read Howard Zinn's version. Uh, and right. it really opened their eyes to the notion that history is told by different people. And I think mm-hmm. it makes that point. So, mm-hmm. so I, you know, as you explained the midrash, I think in one session several weeks back as, as being kind of fan fiction. I, I would be interested in seeing what the people's version of this is. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, before we go on, uh, a couple more uh, Midrashim here. Um, so there's a Midrash that says that there was only one frog, in fact. Uh so one of the places that Midrash steps in, in fact, one of the frequent places, and we miss this, is when there is an issue with the text itself, uh, often a grammatical issue. So that's what we've got here in what I'm calling verse two and what, Robin, you would be calling verse uh, four. This is uh, Aaron held his arms out. Uh, Aaron held his arms out over the waters of Egypt and the frogs came up and covered the land. Uh, But if we look at this, actually, it's my verse five. Ah, Okay. Yeah, that's. Uh, So if we look at it, we've got a singular verb, Hmm. not a plural verb. So the Midrash steps into this and creates this sort of great image that says, in fact, there was just one enormous frog that emerged Hmm. and the Egyptian sorcerers come over and get ready to sort of cast their spells and they, they hit it upon the head, uh, trying to destroy it. And what happens is it explodes into millions and millions of frogs, which cover the land. Well, you know what? Verse seven of my version reads, um, and uh, uh, let's see, the magicians use their tricks or magic arts to do the same thing. So even more frogs came up mm. on the land. So that kind of, kind of goes along with that. Mm. Mm. Something Gosh. I Something I read uh, indicated that, you know, in this case, the um, 
everything that they were matching, the Egyptian sorcerers or magicians were matching, made things worse in each case because they couldn't undo them. So that kind of goes along um, with Daniel's notion of the frog. Right, right. And that goes to the question I asked at the beginning, which is, are these are these plagues just piling up on each other or are they um, ending? Uh, are they sequential? I think in and, each individual one, the one, because we get to a point very quickly where now the, I think in the very next plague, it might be, or the one after it, where the uh, Egyptians can't do it. But in the ones that they can do, I think what they do is make it worse because they can duplicate it, but they can't undo it. Uh-huh. But I think well, that's, that's they- still within each single plague. It doesn't, I don't think, continue. Okay. So, but we have this one giant frog sitting there. Um, is this anything more than humorous or does it have a deeper meaning? I, you know, I don't know what to make of it, but I really loved what Robin was talking about, this connection to the Egyptians, with the Egyptian magicians doing this too, uh, in the sense that it's a reminder that this is a battle between the elites where the elites on both sides end up hurting the everyday people. Yes. Mm-hmm. Right. Those additional frogs that are created that swarm the land, right? How much are they really going to impact the lives of Pharaoh and his magicians? Yeah. And yet those additional frogs absolutely are impacting the lives of the people who are living, uh, you know, hand to mouth. Yes. Yes. So in that way, the giant frog is standing in really for Pharaoh or maybe for the elites. Um, this this huge, overwhelming, amphibious, gross creature out of which come <laughs> all these problems for for ordinary, everyday people. But you know what? If we link it back to that god, Heget, this frog head god, who's got a birth, that also fits that image. Hmm. If we have one and then all these many come out of it. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. 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 And frogs, of course, have become one of the symbols of uh, sort of the, the radical anti-Semitic and racist right in this country. Huh. Huh. Right. Pepe the Frog oh, uh, right. yeah. has, become a, has become an anti-Semitic symbol, a racist symbol. So that goes back to this e, those evil spirits coming out of the mouth of the dragon. Those are frogs. Dude, I'm going to have to go read Revelations. I, yeah. I, you know, I don't think I've read it since college. Yeah. yeah. It's a good Halloween uh, type type thing to read. Uh, <laughs> but the, the interesting thing about the Peppy the Frog is that in, in its origin and its purpose, it was just entirely innocuous. And it's part of it is the hard right um, thumbing its nose and saying, we can take over your symbols. We can take anything that seems innocent and make it our own. Um, which is a display of power. Like who gets to say what the, what the symbols mean. Um, and, and in some ways they're doing that with stupid things like a frog, um, is even more offensive because then if, if a frog could be it, then any kind of innocuous everyday, more or less meaningless thing could, could be taken over and turned into something evil. Um, so that, I'm not sure how that connects here, except that these plagues, like every single one of them, is not like divorced from reality, from the from the everyday annoyances that people have. They're they're just reality magnified. I think in each one, um, God is taking something that's an ordinary thing that you take for granted, or perhaps worship, depending, um, and turn it yeah. and turns it into something horrible and evil. Right. Uh, which, which is this, uh, it's a strange thing to say that we, that we feel that God is, um, kind of taking ordinary things and making them evil and horrible, but it, it really does well, maybe, to be the maybe case. Maybe we can take away the word evil, but I, I think the words uh, that are used, we, we tend to use plagues, but, um, in, in a lot of the commentaries, they use the word signs and wonders so that they become significant, for Pharaoh in some way. There are a sign of something that he needs to pay attention to. Whereas I think we tend to focus on the plague 
aspect of it rather than the sign aspect. And if we connect it to the gods, if we connect it to how it's related to their overall system, then they should be signs for Pharaoh, but he's ignoring them. Yeah. Well, it also, to me, it indicates, um, it it begs the question, how did everyday Egyptians think of this God who they do not know, right? right? And he's the God of the enslaved people, or she is, or whatever. Um, And this God is causing horrible things to happen to them. They must have seen this God and this God's actions as evil. And of course, the grand irony is, as we've talked about, it's simply an unveiling. So... Um, how many times do we are the things that we name evil in our lives and our world simply ourselves reflected back to us? That's true. Mm-hmm. That's true. Um, and we are unwilling to see it. And then the other thing is this: in terms of revealing, last week in chapter seven, God made a statement: "I'm doing this so that you may know I am God." This week, mm-hmm. in a very short minute, when we talk about these frogs. Um, he's going to say, I'm going, I want you to know that there is no one like God. So I began to pay attention. And as we move through the plagues, that knowing statement becomes different each time. Each time there's a little bit more that I want you to know about me. So that's part of why I'm doing this. You know, I want you, I want you to know not only that I'm God, but I want you to know there's no other, and we'll read that in a minute. I want you to know that there is no other God like me. And then as we continue through, I began to pay attention to each one of those knowing kinds of statements and they change each time. It's not the same Hmm. statement each time. So it might be something we want to look at. And it also helps us know why God is doing these and they are signs as opposed to just, I'm plaguing you just to plague you randomly. You know, each one is Hmm. significant. Each one is supposed to show you something different about me. Hmm. You know, interestingly in Jewish tradition, all of these are fundamentally seen to be the sin of idolatry. Yes. Yes. Uh, Right. And idolatry in the sense that, uh, we imagine ourselves to be God. Yes. Or our ideas to be God or our ideologies to be God or to be truth or whatever we, uh, whatever word we want to use there. And that ultimately the destructions that come upon us are of our own making from our own hubris and our own deification of ourselves and our world. Yes. Yes. I agree with that. I think that's clear. So that is ultimately what the plagues reflect is our hubris. <laughs> Cause we are, we are Pharaoh, I think, even I think though so we too. don't want to be Pharaoh at times, I don't think we're always Pharaoh, but I think every one of us at some point in time is Pharaoh <laughs> and <laughs> that hubris or that pride, uh, and that unrelenting stiff neck stubbornness. I think we all, uh, present to God at some point. Or simply that refusal of change. Yes. You know, we we refuse to change. Yes. So speaking of refusing to change, we have once again taken uh, 29 minutes to uh, <laughs> uh, get through four verses. So perhaps we should keep reading. So I'll start okay. at my eight, which is what is yours, Daniel? This is uh, my verse eight. How does it begin? Uh, then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron. And... Then and Pharaoh, said, pray to the Lord to take away the frogs. That's my verse four. Okay. Alrighty. So it's four from now on. It's just four difference of four. Then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, pray to the Lord to take away the frogs from me and my people. And I will let the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. Moses said to Pharaoh, Kindly tell me when I am to pray for you and for your officials and for your people, that the frogs may be removed from you and from your houses and be left only in the Nile. And he then said, tomorrow, Moses said, as you say, so that you may know there is no one like the Lord, our God, the frogs shall leave you and your house and your officials and your people, they shall be left only in the Nile. Then Moses, stop there. I'm really struck by how respectful of a dialogue this is. Right. Well, I, I was if going, I was Moses, I don't think I could talk to Pharaoh this nicely. Hmm. Um, the Robert Alter 
does not make it as respectful. There is no kindly tell me. Uh, Moses said to Pharaoh, you may vaunt over me as for when I should entreat for you and for your servants and for your people. Mm. Um, so he's, because I was reading that along with, uh, Robin, I, I read the kindly tell me it's very sarcastic, <laughs> but yeah. maybe, yeah. maybe I'm wrong. I'm looking and at it. That's what he version. does, right? I, I've got a translation. You may have this triumph over me, um, hmm. giving in a little bit. Huh? But that's, uh, I, I don't know what to think of that strategy because um, it certainly makes sense. You know, like you uh, it may speak well of Moses that even though he's opposed to Pharaoh, um, he's willing to continue to treat him as a human being and to say, look, I know, I know you're the leader of this country. And if you give in too easily, uh, things will go badly for you. So let's make it look uh, like you're triumphing for a moment. Um, and maybe that's a good strategy to say, uh, we're not going to take it all away from you. Um, in the end it isn't though. And I sometimes wonder whether such strategies of like, of appeasement of somebody's desire to hold on to control and power, uh, are wise. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Rashi sees this as, uh, Moses's attempt to, uh, massage Pharaoh's ego. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Well, also, though, uh, a couple commentaries I looked at indicated that rather than um, Moses and God setting the time, as I think they've done in each other thing that's gone on, so that they will know that there isn't some set time where, well, you know, the frogs were going to leave anyway or something of that nature. Um, they're allowing Pharaoh. Let's see. God can work on whatever time you want him to work on. Mm. You, cho you choose a time. You know, um, and that may be the case. I looked at a couple other versions. They don't, they don't say kindly either. So that's kind of interesting. That is I, is, so if I can go on a bit of a tangent here for a moment, Robin, I have a question for you. Uh, I, I've noticed that you keep referring to God with the masculine singular pronoun he. Uh-huh. I am just wondering about that. It's not something I'm used to encountering. Oh, no. I, you know, certainly I know um, traditionalists who do, but in the vast majority of at least the American Jewish world today, it's it's become very much a, a, a faux pas to uh, uh, call God he. And so what do you call him? Uh, <laughs> I did it again. Yeah, huh? There you go. There you go. <laughs> Uh, the eternal God, Adonai, Hashem. So you don't uh, use the pronoun at all. Don't, no, it gets very, very awkward though, of course. Wow. Uh, right. Long sentences where you, where you don't use a pronoun at all for God. That's interesting. I use God and I use he, because we, I, I view him as God, the father as mm. part of the Trinity, God, the son, the Holy spirit. I could go with a number of different, uh, pronouns for, um, but I, I, I'm not a person, I, I'm, I'm all for including women in scripture. And I know that my priest, as we're doing, uh, communion will include in the liturgy, uh, both the wives and, uh, the fathers, um, so that it's mothers and fathers and we use he or she and that sort of thing. But for God, um, I guess I view him as a, a masculine, uh, deity, uh, feminine traits included, I guess. I never thought about that one way or the other. But Thank I'm, you. I'm trying I've... to think about, I'm, I'm trying now to think about using a sentence. Is it disrespectful to use it? No, 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 not, not at all. More, it just sort of uh, stood out to me and was interested in your thinking on it. Huh. No. Well, I would say I've I myself am increasingly uncomfortable with using the masculine pronoun, um, but it is a big question within the church. Like we have our our Book of Common Prayer for Episcopalians generally uses a masculine pronoun. There are supplementary resources, um, particularly enriching our worship. Uh, which is uses gender inclusive language, mm -hmm. and I am, and and we will probably have our prayer book revised sometime within the next decade. Um, and my guess is that at that time, the language will become inclusive across the board. 
It'll be interesting um, to see how they do that, though. Um, it will be. I hope it won't end up calling God it, which right. has been it, something I've heard says. suggested, and I think that would be disrespectful. So, uh, you know, it's interesting because in Hebrew, uh, everything is gendered. Uh, it's in that sense uh, somewhat like the Romance languages. Yes. Uh-huh. Uh, but there is no neuter in Hebrew, no neutral. Okay. Uh, you have to choose between masculine and feminine uh, verb forms and adjectives and so on and so forth. Uh, and in a funny way, it eliminates the gendering of God huh. because even if you end up using the masculine singular pronoun, he for God, if you're used to, you know, a table being a she, because there's no uh, word for it. Oh, and yeah. if you're used to, you know, the, the television being a she and the computer being a he and the so on. So uh, then it actually, in an odd way, takes the gendering out of gendered yeah, pronouns. That makes sense. Uh, but in English, where we're not used to gendering non-living things. Exactly. Uh, when we add that gendered pronoun in, it genders it in a much stronger way than it does in the original. So this is the first time that Pharaoh has said, uh, okay, first of all, to pray that he will let the people go. Hmm. Um, this is the first time this happened. Um, but we know the end of the story. We know how it ends. So we know this isn't for real. So <laughs> what are we to make of it? Huh. Well, right. So this is only the second plague. Blood was not enough for him to to even pretend to relent. Frogs uh, seem to be a little bit different. Um, if the Nile was considered a god, and and if, um, as Robin, you were pointing out, there's a Egyptian frog god, um, both affect things that are considered to be divine. So we're not really, it's hard to, it's hard to, to think one's way to a answer for why this is a moment of fake relenting. (laughs) Yeah. Do you think possibly he really is relenting until he gets relief and then figures, Oh, well they undid it. So I can go on about my business again. So let's read the next few verses because I think it actually brings that in. So we started, we're ready for 12. Is that right? Yes, my verse 8. Then Moses and Aaron went out from Pharaoh and Moses cried out to the Lord concerning the frogs that he had brought upon Pharaoh. And the Lord did as Moses requested. The frogs died in the houses, the courtyards and the fields. And they gathered them together in heaps and the land stank. But when Pharaoh saw that there had been a respite, he hardened his heart and would not listen to them just as the Lord had said. So I I grew up in St. Louis, uh, which for obvious reasons has seen significantly more protests from Black Lives Matter than at least I've encountered here in Cincinnati or in Southern Ohio. And one of the interesting things that's happening in St. Louis is protesters will shut down a highway. Yes. And they will just go in the middle of a day and stand in the highway. I guess not the middle of the day, usually right at rush hour. Yes. Uh, and stand in the middle of the highway till traffic is shut down. And the argument that they make for this, right, of course, it's infuriating if you're stuck in traffic. Um, the argument that they make is that the moment that this stops interfering with our lives, we stop caring. Yes. Yes. Right? The, the disruption is required because that empathy just disappears. Yes. Right. We're willing to do something while it's bothering us, but as soon as it stops bothering us and interfering in our own lives, Mm -hmm. it goes away. And that's one of the classic definitions now that we're hearing very often uh, of privilege. If you don't Mm. have to pay attention because it's not bothering you, even though something exists and is real and people are telling you it's real, then that's probably coming from your place of privilege. Hmm. And, Hmm. and, you know, in terms of traffic and having the right to drive here, uh, or drive wherever without interruption, not having to look at someone 
blocking the road because they are upset about something or protesting, then you're, you're privileged. If you have another way to get there without doing that. Mm-hmm. That I love that definition of privilege. I, yeah, I actually great. had not heard it before and I, I is almost a perfect definition. Well, if you think about the number see. of people who are coming out and saying, Oh, I didn't know this was going on. I didn't know. Mm. Well, why didn't you know? Because yep. you didn't have yeah. to. It doesn't didn't affect right. you. You didn't have to. You could turn away, go about your business, right. and it's not affecting you. Hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Huh. That was powerful. So, hmm. Yeah. That's the truth. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Funny how the truth is powerful. Uh. So 16, my 16 in NRSV. Then the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, Stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the earth so that it may become gnats throughout the whole land of Egypt. And they did so. Aaron stretched out his hand with staff and struck the dust of the earth and the gnats came on humans and animals alike. And all the dust of the earth turned into gnats throughout the whole land of Egypt. The magicians tried to produce gnats by their secret arts, but they could not. There were gnats on both humans and animals. Shall we stop there or keep going? No, let's read one more line. And the magicians said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he would not listen to them just as the Lord had said. So the magicians have got it. They've been convinced. Right, because they can't do this. They we're, can't we're, do on, this. we're on plague three now, and they're out of the battle. They can't do this. They, this they is a God no longer in their image. Right. They can't do it, and they can't undo it. Mm-hmm. The interesting thing is that both this plague with the frogs and the gnats, there's no warning. We just go directly mm-hmm. from the frogs into, okay, we're going to do gnats now, and there's no going to Pharaoh, no telling him about it ahead of time. Um, uh-huh. We're just going right into it, and, and there's no warning. Um, it just happens. We like to look backwards at history like it has a direction. Yes. And like it was inevitable. Yes. And when you're in it, it's not inevitable and it no. doesn't have a direction. And history no. doesn't have to, uh, right. Uh, I less and less find myself, uh, intellectually at least, believing Dr. King's classic line that the, uh, 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 the arc of history is long, but bends towards justice. Uh, I'm less and less convinced that it has to bend towards justice. I think it bends in whatever direction we bend it in. Yeah, I and think however during this we moment, choose. It wasn't clear that this was going to be 10 plagues. Maybe it was going to be seven. Maybe it was going to be 15. Well, I think at any given point, Pharaoh could have said, okay, I'm done. I will let you go and really let them go and mean it. And at that point, then this would have ended. But if we, if we go back to that notion of this is not only about Pharaoh, it's about the whole world. And it's about these knowings that I am God, that I am, there's no other God like me, that, uh, we continue, you know, we're going to find out that this God is in this land, but not only this land, but the whole world. And mm-hmm. that, that he controls everything in the whole world. And it gets bigger and bigger what we know about him. If God is, is on a path where he wants that understood, then the minute Pharaoh relents, then the knowings don't get to proceed either. Mm. So there's something that makes me uncomfortable about this knowings idea or that this all is happening so that God simply can reveal God's power. And I, and I know that that is a fairly common uh, theological understanding of what is going on with the plagues, but I am not overly comfortable with an idea, with the idea of a God who wants to reveal divine power through the act of imposing human suffering. Um, I, you know, the God, my understanding of God is one who does not want people to suffer for, uh, for any reasons, let alone the reason of simply showing power. You know, that's, that's an important, heavy question, Carl. Um, mm-hmm. I, I'm going to wrestle with this, but I guess my, my initial response is this model that we've been looking at where Pharaoh retracts godliness the yes. moment the punishment ends, right? Yes. Pharaoh, Pharaoh retracts the image 
uh, or the freedoms that rightfully belong to any image of the divine the moment that his punishment ends uh, or it's no longer hindering him. And I think it's telling that the final plague, the one that really ends this is a plague that can't be undone. Yes. Um, And if we think about a God who loves us and a parent who loves us, and we make some comparisons. Now we know at a certain point, the comparisons are going to end. But if we look at this notion of a parent who loves us, but chastises us for our own benefit, for our own discipline, for our own instruction, some of that is painful. Um, As a child, I got spankings. Um, And they weren't designed just to hurt me. They were designed to make sure I didn't run in the street again or I didn't touch the hot stove. Um, So they were designed as instruction. Hebrews 12 talks about... because of the faith that everyone else has, and because it, it what that's described in eleven, uh, in chapter eleven, that then therefore we are going to be models. But then God will chastise us, and we shouldn't um, be upset about that. We need to expect it, and it's not in this sense so much a punishment, but a, a training discipline. The word used, I think, is a word that means more training and instruction rather than punishment. But sometimes, right, but the- go ahead. That's a different thing than um, than God doing those things to show their power or to show God's power. I mean, so if, if we took that, the corollary of that would be a parent who beats their children just to show, just to show their the power. dominance. And that's not what, I don't you think know. God's doing that so much here. I think he wants you to know and understand as a way of training. And at any point in this, I'd like to think that Pharaoh has the power to stop it by saying no. Mm-hmm. You know, which makes it about a choice that's being made. Um, but yet out of that choice is, is a lesson that should be a great lesson that would continue at least with the Israelites and perhaps also with the Egyptians for the rest of time. Now we know when we get further on, uh, we've got all kinds of spoilers. We know that the Israelites don't remember the lesson very quickly in the wilderness before they ever get to the promised land. They forget the power and what they saw. Um, so I, I'm, I, I'm like Daniel, I guess I have to think about this because I don't want a God to just cause suffering, but I also want a God who doesn't let me do, uh, I don't want a parent or a God who lets me do whatever I want. I guess my, my image of the divine, at least is not a divine that has agency. It's not a God that acts in the world or loves or hates or, um, I, I come from a philosophical tradition of Maimonides that sort of says that uh, um, uh, to say that God loves or hates or is vengeful is as absurd as saying that God is 15 pounds overweight. Huh. Uh, that these are fundamentally human characteristics and God becomes the word instead that we use for the unknowable, absolute capital T truth of the universe. Yes both a sense of scientific truth, but also a sense of ethical truth. Hmm. And if we read, at least for me, I think if we read these plagues in the notion of, so that God's power may be known through that kind of lens of what God is, Mm -hmm. um, to me, it becomes again, the sense of sort of the inevitability that when you deny justice in this world, justice will be denied. I agree with that, but I guess I would, I would include everything else that you said you did not look at in it as well. Cause I, I, in Exodus 34, God himself explains who he is and explains his name and he includes love and he includes compassion and he includes patience in that definition in, in Exodus mm. 34 out of his own mouth as he expands on what the name Yahweh means, uh, which we translate Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. Um, he gives this, he, in Exodus 3, he first introduces that name. And then in Exodus 34, he, um, I think the words used in NRSV are proclaims that name or explains it or, or gives an exposition on that name. And all those things are included there. So that's something, I guess I'll have to think about that a little bit more, what you're saying. Well, and, and Daniel, well, I agree with you, like kind of philosophically that God is beyond human definition. Yes. What we have here in Exodus is humans 
putting forward ideas of what God is like. And mm. even, if, even if we say those ideas are going to ultimately be wrong, we still have to admit that they have effects. You know, like um, if one believes that God is an angry punisher of one's enemies, it suddenly becomes much more permissible to go about angrily trying to punish one's enemies, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't think... I don't think admitting that God is beyond our understanding frees us from having to ask questions of this text, you know, and and one of the questions about these plagues that I honestly have is, are they moral? You know, is this a vision of God that I, that I myself want to have truck with, or is it a vision of God that makes me deeply uncomfortable? And if so, what do I do with that discomfort? Um, And, well, if we go back I, to this notion know. of justice, I think this God, the God that I worship, always comes down on the side of justice. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes, because of the choices that are made as that happens, that ends up hurting other people. And I don't necessarily always look at God as the one doing it. I know when people ask me, well, when 9-11 happened, where was God? And my answer is always with the people that were falling out of the building. He's with mm-hmm. those oppressed. He's with those people. And he's on the side of, of them. But because he gives us free will and we can make choices, sometimes he lets us make choices. So it goes back to the question of whether or not Pharaoh has a choice. Free will. Yeah. If he has yeah. a choice, then he is the one in reality who is permitting the suffering of his people. If he doesn't have choice, then that goes back to Carl's question and becomes something that becomes very difficult to live with. <laughs> well, and I like we have talked before about the question of uh, the judge, the judgmental aspect of God yes. and the merciful aspect mm-hmm. of God. And I, I think that's just an important thing to bring forward here and to say, you know, maybe maybe when. Moses is willing to listen to Pharaoh say, um, you know, trust me, I'll, I'll be good from now on. He's trying to be merciful. Like he knows God is merciful, but then when Pharaoh is not willing to, to go for this, um, the judgment of God steps in, um, you know, mercy to a certain point, right? of course. And I think, I think he always comes down on the side of mercy. I think about, um, Jonah and Nineveh. In that story with Jonah and the whale, Jonah, right. Jonah refused to do what God told him to do as a prophet, to go talk to the people of Nineveh who were, I guess, committing horrendous sins and so forth. And God wanted to help them, save them and so forth. Jonah refused to go. And it's interesting. His reason for not going was he knew that God was merciful and that if he went and if the people turned, then God wouldn't do the punishments that he said he was going to do. That was his reason. And he's really angry about it. And then at the end, when God does something, he says, see, you did, you did just what I knew you were going to do. So I think, I think throughout scripture, Old Testament and new, we see this picture of God who has who expects you to do right, expects you to do justice, but consequences happen when you don't. Hmm. Yeah. So I think the kind of the ethical social question that, that these plagues and Exodus are asking that, well, I hear them asking at any rate is um, how, when is, when should we be merciful and when should we sit in judgment and how do we know uh, what is the right time for hmm. for, for each? Hmm. I think it's always time for mercy, mercy on our part because we're not in a position where we can always judge. And I think you can still take actions that serve to make correct what isn't correct or just what isn't just and still be merciful. Right. But it, again, it's all in the eye of the beholder. So yeah, people true. who are having their commute interrupted because they're protesters in that's the center true. of the highway might think that those protesters are not being merciful. You know, they might think, well, I didn't do any of this stuff. Why am I being inconvenienced? Yeah, that's true. Um, ordinary Egyptians who are uh, having their intestines crawl with frogs <laughs> might reasonably think, I am not Pharaoh. I don't get, you know, <laughs> I, I don't get a say in this. So why am I the one who is suffering? Um, so... 
I think we just have to keep asking this question with every plague. You know, is this judgment? Is this mercy? Um, I think it's an important question to ask. Uh, in our time right now, with our circumstances, with our politics, with our economics, with with the the way things are going, I think that's an important question to ask all the time. Yeah. All right. Let's keep asking it. So we're, we have flies or, or lice or however you want or gnats. Gnats. Or yeah. We're itchy Same. regardless. Yes. We're itchy regardless. Yeah. Yes. And um, so so now we're God's at twenty. Um, yes. So at uh, 16. You're 16, right. I, once again, by the way, we have this singular verb for lice. Uh, and here the rabbis pick it up and they say that the lice were so thick yeah. that it looked as if it was one sort of wall of lice or one creature. Hmm. Creepy. As a classroom teacher, you never <laughs> want to hear the word lice. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm scratching my head just mentioning the word. Yep. <laughs> okay, 20. Then the Lord said to Moses, rise early in the morning and present yourself before Pharaoh as he goes out to the water and say to him, thus says the Lord, let my people go so they may worship me. For if you will not let my people go, I will send swarms of flies on you, your officials and your people and into your houses and the houses of the Egyptians shall be filled with swarms of flies. So also so just to make this a little grosser, by the way, uh, the, the Midrash says that this is not just flies, but these are the uh, swarming creatures. So we've got flies and maggots, we've got maggots and snakes and scorpions and oh. anything sort of gross and creepy and crawly. Oh, so that makes it even worse. But on the day, this is 22, but on the day I will set apart the land of Goshen where my people live so that no swarms of flies will be there that you may know that I am the Lord. I, so that you may know that I, the Lord am in this land. Thus, I will make a distinction between my people and your people. This sign shall appear tomorrow. And here we've actually got that word sign in the NRSV. Mm-hmm. Um, the Lord did so. And great swarms of flies came into the house of Pharaoh and into his officials' houses. In all of Egypt, the land was ruined because of the flies. Then Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, go sacrifice to your God within the land. But Moses said, it would not be right to do so for the sacrifices that we offer to the Lord our God are offensive to the Egyptians. If we offer in the sight of the Egyptians sacrifices that are offensive to them, they will they not stone us? We must go a three days journey into the wilderness and sacrifice to the Lord our God as he commands. So Rashi picks this up and says, why is it that this would be hateful to the Egyptians? And the answer for Rashi, at least, is that the Egyptians worshipped sheep, which okay. were what the Jews were going to sacrifice. Uh-huh. Uh, but again, it's this continuation of the uh, unmaking of Egyptian civilization, right? We are literally going to be sacrificing the gods of Egypt on an altar to mm-hmm. an unseeable, unknowable deity. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So this is a question for me because I, I was reading, I'm reading this book, uh, Exodus and Emancipation, uh, a, a really excellent book about Exodus and the American slave experience mm. and the slave trade and all sorts of other things. Um, and, uh, and, and one of the things that, um, uh, the author, uh, kind of Scheist, I guess, C-H-E-I-S-T, Scheist maybe. One of the things he says is that the reason why uh, Joseph settles his father and his brothers in the land of Goshen is because they are traditionally shepherds and the Egyptians um, oh. look down on shepherds, find mm-hmm. it to be kind of scumbag labor, you know, much like tanners were later seen or, you know, people who, uh, well, anyway. Um, and so this to me seems a little bit of a callback, you know, uh, and I, so like we started out being set apart from you because of our labor, because of our working with animals and livestock. Um, we, we want to be at least richly apart from you again, uh, in an important way Mm -hmm. because, uh, you've enslaved us. 
So, so there's that separation, but then also God makes this distinction in is for the first time we hear this mention that, okay, this is not going to affect the Israelites. This is not going to affect the land where they are. This fly business is not going to be. So we see this separation kind of like the wheat and the tares, the sheep and the goats um, in, in the New Testament, in the parables that Jesus tells. We see this ongoing setting apart of God's own people. Um, yeah. And Goshen will come in again. But but then again, there are two things going on here. Like it's It's not so simple as to say... The people are steadily segregating themselves off into the land of Goshen, which will keep them protected from plagues. Because, of course, the whole reason they have to mark the lintels of their doors with blood um, before the angel exactly. of death come through is because they're living right next door to the exactly. Egyptians. You know, if they were living off in Goshen uh, in in their own neighborhood, that wouldn't be necessary. So, what we have here are a, a people who are intermingled with the Egyptians. At some cost Mm -hmm. and and are maybe remembering a previous time when they were not and wanting to get back to that. And are we perhaps using the word Goshen as a a metaphor Uh, because we we haven't yet, we don't have a nation of Israel yet. So we're not saying Israelites or, or in, or Hebrews, but we're using that as a synonym where I'm setting apart the land of, of Goshen, meaning all of the people all the Hebrews are set apart. Could it be read that way? How does what? How Maybe. does the Jewish text read? So, if we look at the Hebrew itself, uh, and on that day in the land of Goshen, it is an. The Hebrew makes it clear that this is a geography. It is a, it is a geography piece. Um, I, though it almost creates this sort of dynamic where it's sort of a choose your side, right? Yeah. Which side of this line are you going to go on, right? Yeah. Do, yeah. Do you become an Israelite simply by showing up at Goshen and saying, I'm throwing my lots in with this people? Right. 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 At 23, year 19, it says, thus, I will make a distinction between my people and your people. So it's yeah. about, I'm God, I've got people. And and later on, um, when, when I forget, it's chapter 14, maybe chapter 13, when the people actually leave, um, there are the Israelites leaving, but it also has a verse that says many other people who were not Israelites left with them. Yes. So it's not a distinction where God's making and excluding people. It's a choice that you can make if you choose to stand uh-huh. with the Israelites then you're included in this as well is, is the way you, you know, once you get to see that the distinctions are not, I'm God cutting out people. It's your self-selecting in, it seems to be. You're choosing to be my people or not. And the, the Midrash actually picks that up and says uh, that there is no such thing as a Jew by choice or as a, a convert to Judaism, uh, that these are just Jewish souls who were born to non-Jewish parents. Uh-huh. <laughs> that's exactly what's happening there. Interesting. Uh, Interesting. Right. So what what does it mean then to be a Jew? <laughs> it means to be someone uh, whose soul is a part of this uh, self-selected group of the vulnerable. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Hmm. Uh-huh. So you identify with those in this case and and in in our case in the world today with the marginalized, whoever that is. Exactly. And that's that's the core of this word, ger, uh, which comes to mean actually in modern Judaism, a Jew by choice. Uh, But at its most fundamental level, I think the best translation for ger is undocumented uh, immigrant. Interesting. Huh. Interesting. This is someone without status in the land that they live. Huh. Yeah, right. yeah, which certainly relates to us now. Sure. Um, hmm. Okay, shall we finish this chapter? So where did we leave off? Uh, 20, okay, he says go sacrifice, so we're not doing it. Uh, 28. So Pharaoh said, I will let you go to sacrifice to the Lord your God in the wilderness, provided you do not go very far away. Pray for me. Then Moses said, as soon as I leave you, I will pray to the Lord that the swarms of flies may depart tomorrow from Pharaoh, from his officials, from his people. Only do not let Pharaoh again deal falsely by not letting the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. So Moses went out 
from Pharaoh and prayed to the Lord. And the Lord did as Moses asked. He removed the swarms of flies from Pharaoh, from his officials, from his people. Not one remained, but Pharaoh hardened his heart this time also and would not let the people go. So what do we make of this pray for me line? The the beginnings of repentance. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. The the Hasidic teachers, uh, who are sort of the, the spiritualists of about 200 years ago, uh, in the Jewish world, uh, they pick this up and they say that Pharaoh's fundamental sin is his narcissism. Yes. That he is incapable of seeing any event or any person except through how that event or person relates to him. And so he can't even imagine that the purpose of the Jews going to the wilderness to sacrifice is anything other than about him, about him. Thank you for listening to Lost in the Wilderness, a priest and a rabbi explore Exodus. Lost in the Wilderness is made possible by a generous contribution from Christchurch Cathedral, as well as the Diocese of Southern Ohio. Our theme music is by Brianna Kelly from her album, All Things Are Being Made New. Uh, and let's see, you can find me at prayerbookart.com. Robin, where can people find you? You can find me at deeperwritingrobinholland.blogspot.com. And how about you, Daniel? Uh, You can find me at (laughs) nojokeproject.com. All right. Okay, well, thank you both, and uh, I hope you don't meet any gigantic frogs. And if you do, remember not to hit them. (laughs) 